Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast, America's number one source for safer, smarter, more profitable investing, where we aim to bring you the very best ideas and the very best minds in the business completely filter-free. I am your host, Charles Sizemore, and we have a lot planned for you today. Joining me are Amber Lancaster, Adam O'Dell, and Mike Carr. What we are going to talk about today is, drum roll, the single most important issue of at least the next six months, and that is, of course, the debt ceiling. What is it? What happened? Why does it matter? And why does it matter to your portfolio, most importantly? We're then going to pivot, talk about recession. Are we in one? What does the data say? And then finally, the barbarous relic, gold, the yellow metal. Are we bullish? Are we bearish? We go around the horn and we get everyone's opinion on that. Is, is there a trade to be made there? Mm-hmm. So jumping right into it, I'm going to bring up a chart. And it is a nasty one. The national debt. It recently hit $31 trillion. Now, just stop and actually fathom that. How we managed to spend $31 trillion, we could probably riff on that forever. But this is significant because the government has effectively maxed out their credit card. And it's, it's, the credit card analogy is actually a pretty good one because how did this all start? Back in 1917, we were starting World War I. Uh, the Treasury did not want to have to go back to Congress every, you know, every, every other day to ask for more money. So to make it more convenient for everyone, Congress effectively gave the Treasury a credit card and said, you can borrow up to this amount. Anything over that, you have to come back to us. Since then, we've raised the debt ceiling, I believe, 25 times and counting. Uh, it just keeps getting higher. It is an issue this time because Congress has made it very clear they're not really wanting to raise the ceiling without some pretty big negotiations here to to, to lower spending. Uh, White House doesn't really want to budge, so we are in for potentially months of of showdown. This could get nasty come early summer if we don't have money to service our debt and we default. So Mike, I'm going to start with you. You're an experienced trader. You've done this for years. You remember 2011, the last time we kind of came close to this. What's uh, what was the impact on volatility, and 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 how how do you see that playing out this time around? Is there a trade to make? What are you doing? There is a trade here. It is not a buy and hold situation. So we're going to get news, and it's going to be frightening, and then it's going to be reassuring, and that's what happened in 2011. S and P said we're going to downgrade you because we think Congress is so bitterly divided they can't come together on anything. That was. 2011. Here we are now, 12 years later, we could repeat that same statement. Um, In the end, nobody's going to lose a dime in treasury bills or treasury notes or securities. So everyone knows treasuries are safe. Any reaction to the downside there is, um, you know, overdone. Uh, Stocks, we're going to get a lot of signals as this unfolds. And that's the whole key here. Trade the signals. Don't think you can outsmart the market on this one. When you get a sell signal, take it. When you get a buy signal, get back in. That's exactly how it traded out in 2011. It was interesting. In 2011, despite being downgraded, our government bonds actually rose in value. So that's what it became sort of a fear trade where people actually piled into the asset being downgraded because it was still seen as being the, the, the least risky place to be. Now, Adam, you're a, you're also a trader. You're also a student of history. Um, back in 2011, we were in a bull market, a raging bull market coming out of 2008, 2009. This time, we're starting the year a bit weaker. It's We're in a bear market. We have not recovered from that yet. 
Does that matter in this scenario? How are you trading this? Well, I'll speak to the macro picture uh, for just a brief moment, but then I'll talk more on the tactical level of how I actually position my readers uh, in actionable recommendations, which at the end of the day is what matters. But um, not only in 2011 were we uh, coming out or we were in a new bull market, whereas now we're in a bear market, but Back in 2011, the federal debt as a percentage of GDP was just about 40%. And right now it's uh, just around 100%, which is as high as it's been uh, looking back to the 1940s. Uh, also, the Fed's balance sheet in 2011 was just over $2 trillion, and now it's around $9 trillion. So we've seen basically a doubling of the federal debt as a percentage of GDP and a nearly 4 to 5x um, increase in the Fed's balance sheet. So it's definitely... Uh, a weird situation, uh, weird being an understatement word, but I, you know, I think it's not going to be an issue until it becomes an issue, and nobody really can predict exactly when everybody all at once is going to lose uh, faith in the U.S. Treasuries or there's going to be a liquidity crisis. Um, it will, I believe, come at some point, but that's uh, about as predict uh, hard to predict as anything. Uh, but really, we're here to help our readers and our viewers and our subscribers, uh, people in our community, make actionable uh, you know, money in the market. So sometimes you have to back away from this macro picture and all this talk about political, um, you know, gridlock and whatnot, and just find an actionable trade. And, and really, that's what I've done. Um, it, last year, the, the S&P 500 fell into a bear market. If you put $10,000 in the S&P at the beginning of the year, you lost about $2,000. If you had bought stocks on Monday's close and sold them on Wednesday's close and done that every week of the year, you would be up about 10%. Um, so really what I, I run a strategy called Wednesday windfalls, where we try to just very, you know, take a small part of the week and try to get into stocks uh, for, for two days, really the seasonally strongest two days of the week, which are Tuesday and Wednesday. And, um, and really, that's a way to get off of this uh, hamster wheel of trying to figure out what the macro picture is going to be, you know, one year, five years, 10 years out. Yeah, let's put a link to that down below. If you want to know more about Wednesday windfalls, you know, please check that out. Uh, that's I think that's the key. We don't really know. I, we know that they're going to raise the debt ceiling. At the end of the day, it's not possible for them to just not borrow more money. Uh, that would involve slashing about half a trillion dollars for the spending. And our congressmen like their jobs, so they're not going to do that lest they lose their jobs. The question is, what happens between now and then? It could get dicey, something to trade. Now, Amber, you're our resident data guru, our queen nerd, if you will. That's what we called you last week when uh, you weren't on, so you couldn't actually defend yourself. But uh, you, you should take that as a compliment. Okay. But at any rate, what's uh, what? Do you, how do you see this? Well, what what does the data show you? Sure. Well, Charles, given the current political environment, I personally would be remiss to say that a breach of the federal debt limit is not anything to worry about, and and an indefinite impasse between the White House and the House of Representatives could happen if negotiations do fail. We all know that anything is really possible. And actually, I'm not alone in that thinking. I bought a chart with me today. It's a Bloomberg chart. I'm going to share my screen. Hopefully it works. Hope you guys see this. Do you see that? We do. Okay, awesome. So check out this chart, everyone. Um, it's of the one-year U.S. credit default swap, and it shows that the cost to protect U.S. debt is surging. You'll see that right here. And it's now at its highest level since... 2011, uh, credit default swaps on U.S. sovereign debt really have jumped higher in recent days. And based on history, it may take months for them to retreat. And it means the cost to protect against a U.S. government default really has risen. So worries are increasing. Uh, so, shows Wall Street's taking this seriously. 
Oh yes, it's yeah. and the charts don't lie. Hopefully, <laughs> so in real terms, like what Adam and, and and Mike were saying, what does this mean for stock investors as well as home and auto loan borrowers alike? Well, you know, pol political impasses would definitely lead to more volatility in the markets that can be traded, and if the debt ceiling is not raised, one scenario is that considerable government spending cuts could ensue. That's one scenario. And based on a Bloomberg research study I was reading through, uh, those spending cuts could hit as much as 4% of the annualized total GDP, uh, thereby further boosting a potential recession risk. And um, plus, not dissimilar to 2011, a sovereign US debt a credit rating decrease uh, for the U.S. obviously would mean that higher interest rates of us hiring borrowing costs for mortgages and car loans, well, that would ensue. But there's one saving grace, guys. There's one saving grace, and that is that negotiations eventually work between the White House and the House of Representatives, and it's because most everyone knows someone who receives Social Security. Uh, while Social Security payments are really uh, covered by a dedicated trust fund, the ability to deliver money to, to our moms, dad, grandma, grandpas, aunts, uncles, loved ones, anyone, friends, family, would be at risk. It would be put at risk because the everyday workings of the government would be hobbled. So in this high inflation environment, people are already having less discretionary income uh, because everything just costs more. Why put undue financial hardship on our loved ones? So this could influence our, the, our voters will tolerate a certain amount of clowning around in Washington up until the Social Security check doesn't arrive. And all of a sudden, then it's not fun anymore. Exactly. And that's why it's in, for an investment standpoint, the way I see it, assets like gold and even Bitcoin, dare I say, digital gold could be seen, uh, could be seeing a boost from investors who have money sitting on the side because there's still cash in the economy as this debt ceiling scenario plays out. But we'll we'll see how it now works. You mentioned gold. You're you're jumping the gun here. We're, we're <laughs> going to talk about gold later. Okay. Uh, yes. Before we do that, I do want to pivot. And you mentioned recession. Mm -hmm. So depressing little anecdote. Party City declared bankruptcy last week. And I just that's where I go to buy stuff for my kids' birthday parties, like little hats and plates, and just it's just sad that went out that that's bank going bankrupt. It's probably just a reorg, but still, um, I don't know that somehow there's always these anecdotes when you kind of hit a recessionary period that just sort of sting a little bit more than others. And somehow Party City just kind of hurts me as a father. But anyway, they're not the only company that reported last week. Microsoft's laying off 10,000 people. Uh, Alphabet, Google's parent company, is laying off 12,000 people. Uh, it's The yield curve is still massively inverted. There's a lot of – and this was, this was all before the, the debt ceiling um, fiasco, whatever you want to call it, started um, to unwind here. Mm -hmm. So uh, the data doesn't look great. Now, Adam, you passed around the office last week. What, what, what are we looking at here? These are expectations for earnings. You see in blue, they are expected to be significantly higher. Now, Adam, one point that you've made is that stock valuations really only make sense if earnings continue to be good. If earnings come in well, come in better than expected or whatnot, then, that, then, then the stock market is more or less fairly valued. But that really hinges on earnings being good. So yeah, what? How? I mean, if we're are, are they going to be good, Adam? I, I, what, what do you think here? 
Sure. So it really comes down to earnings this year. Last year, 2022 was a story about uh, stocks being uh, sold off in, in basically the 100% or more than 100% of the sell-off in the actual index. The price you see when you look at your brokerage account was from um, a multiple contraction. So basically investors said for $1 of earnings, I'm no longer willing to pay 25 or 30 or 35 dollars i'm willing to pay a lot less and so that's the price to earnings multiple contracted by about 30 percent in 2022 uh, meanwhile in 2022 earnings were positive earnings grew by about five to six percent if you look at the s p 500 companies um, so that's one piece of the puzzle for 2022 now 2023 i'm i'm having a laser focus on earnings um, you see all of these big tech companies cutting uh, employees, and that's a sign that they're worried about their earnings holding up. Uh, analysts, Wall Street analysts are always over-optimistic. They always overestimate earnings. Uh, so if you look at the S&P 500, this year they're expecting about $225 per share of earnings. And then in 2024, they're already looking out to $250 per share of earnings. And that would um, basically mean that the analysts don't expect a recession in 2023. Um, so if we get a recession in 2023, it's most likely that the earnings per share of uh, S&P 500 companies is going to decline. And that's going to make uh, stocks look very expensive again uh, if we don't see another leg down in prices. So um, I'm really watching the earnings, especially in the tech and communication sectors. Um, basically, the profit margins that um, have gone really above trend over this past bull market, 100% uh, of them uh, came from expansion and profit margins from the technology sector and the communications sector. And we kind of saw that in the late 90s. And then obviously, in the 2000 to 2002 bear market, 100% of the contraction in profit margins came from the technology sector. So again, on a bottoms up, on a micro level, um, I have plenty of uh, good bullish ideas in technology companies as do Amber and Ian. And um, so we're not like bearish on all of tech. We just, you have to be very careful the price you pay for tech names right now. The price you pay and your time horizon in the trade. I think that's another issue as well. Um, it's this, you are looking at a tricky environment to buy and hold. I mean, it's, it's not, there's profits to be made. It's not as easy as it used to be. But so, Amber, I want to get your take on something. Mm -hmm. So kind of continuing this kind of warning sign theme, if you will, um, you and Ian passed around a chart that really got my attention. Mortgage payments as a percentage of income. You see, for most of the last decade and a half, we've been kind of humming along in the high 20s to low 30s as a percent of income. That was an affordable house payment. It's looking a lot less affordable right now. It's actually higher today than it was in the lead up to the 2008 meltdown, which was, of course, centered around housing. So what, what does that data tell you? Are we at risk here? What does that mean? Well, yes, uh, home affordability is worse, but I can say that relief may be on the way. And here's what I mean. So if you or a loved one are in the market to buy a home right now, particularly a new home, uh, home builders are now saying, in a way, to wait a few months if you're looking for a deal. Uh, depending on the builder, uh, these deals later in the year may happen for different reasons. Uh, for instance, a luxury home builder, Toll Brothers, well, they make these very pricey homes and their home buyers actually have to uh, place a non-refundable deposit 
on their new home contracts to the tune of like upwards of $75,000. So their new home contract cancellation rates are very low. They're pretty low. But builders- No one wants to walk away from that. No, no one wants to do that for sure. But builders like KB Homes, uh, who's actually new, uh, new homes are priced about half that of Toll Brothers um, housing costs. So a mind-blowing cancellation rate of 68% in the three months ended in November 2022, uh, as their buyers are more sensitive to volatile market conditions that we've been experiencing. Now, despite this dichotomy, both builders still have backlogs uh, of homes to build, no matter the cancellation rates. Therefore, uh, to see these buyers com uh, to completion, they're now lowering uh, new home prices um, right now. But as cost relief for building uh, actually decreases and, and manifests, home price release is, relief is actually teeing up for the future. So I was reading through Bloomberg. That's my go-to source for many things. Well, Bloomberg says that KB mentioned that it is actually, quote, uh, cost to build a home fell by $10,000 in the most recent quarter, and the company believes that it's still in the early innings of the cost reduction effort, expecting more relief in 2023 uh, from lumber, other building materials, labor, end quote. So the way we see it, uh, therefore, and you can see that new home buyers, well, they're able, if they're able to wait it out and, and hopefully capture these uh, lower prices in the new, in the end of the year, then that would be best. That's where we're seeing home prices right now. For new that, that's good to hear. Like th that could make the difference in this being a mild recession or mm -hmm. being a pretty nasty one because housing is one of those big dominoes. When it falls, it takes a lot of other things with it. Um, another factor there is, is interest rates. Um, mm -hmm. We've already seen mortgage rates fall from the highs of, of late last year. I mean, they topped out over the average 30-year mortgage rate topped out at over 7% last year. It's, it's down in the low sixes now. Still a lot higher than we would like, but um, definitely moving in the right direction. So that's, that's one silver lining there. Uh, you know, we, we are likely looking at some sort of recession this year, but if housing holds up, it may not be the end of the world anyway. Let's, uh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, for sure. <laughs> now, Mike, you're uh, you're looking pretty smart these days. Uh, you're, you, um, you came out with this, this concept of the dead cat bounce, which is, of course, a familiar term to a lot of traders. You uh, you said that it looked like this would be a year where we saw a lot of that. Now, obviously, stocks started strongly in January. They have now started to kind of back off. I'm going to share a chart that you shared with me. This is uh, what are we looking at here, Mike? This is uh, this is from 2000 to 2002. I believe you wanted to make a point here. So this is just, it's a zigzag chart. It shows the zigs and zags of the markets in non-technical terms. Um, but it shows there were dozens of 5% rallies during that long, long decline of more than 80%. Now, the smartest guy in the world might have sold the top and bought back at the absolute bottom. But 99% of us would have been too scared to hold on through those 20% rallies. So I think the money to be made, like Adam was talking about, it's your time frame. Trade those short-term rallies. Get in on the bounce to expect the next decline because we're still in a down market. Like Amber just mentioned with housing prices, they're starting to fall. But last over the past 12 months, there were about a thousand homes built that were priced under $300,000. We have a long ways to go before housing is affordable. Um, you know, the difference we're talking with Toll Brothers, 
in my neighborhood up the street, they have a development, they're cutting their prices from 1.2 to start to 1.15. Not really a bargain, 1.2 million to 1.15 yeah. million. So we're not looking at bargains yet. We got a long ways to go in this. And in this second chart, it's already started. We're seeing the zigs and zags. We're seeing that optimism where people are saying, hey, it's almost over. Home builders are cutting. And then we're getting the reality. They're cutting $50,000 in a million and a half dollar home. Until we get under that 300,000 range, we're a long ways from over in any of these markets. So we got to trade the zags. Trade trade the zags. That's that that's our new uh, catchphrase for 2023, trade the zags. Let's move on. We teased gold. That was something that um, we've all, you know, what's the story with gold? Gold's always been an interesting anti-dollar trade. Now, interestingly enough, in 2022, Gold did phenomenally poorly, even though we had really high inflation. Why? It did poorly because you had the Fed having the most hawkish interest rate hikes in history. Generally speaking, when the Fed is being hawkish, raising interest rates, that's, that means a strong dollar, and it means weak everything else, including gold. Now, what's happened is the rest of the world is kind of caught up to some extent. Um, you know, that's you, you, the dollar. I'm not saying it's topped, but it looks like it may be at least in the process of topping relative to a lot of currencies and perhaps relative to gold. So we did a poll. We, we, we polled our viewers, like, are you bullish or bearish on gold? And over 95% said that they were bullish. I think that's, that's interesting. Now, but Amber, let's start with you. I want you to give me either a big thumbs up or a big Roman emperor thumbs down on gold? What are your views on this? Thumbs up. <laughs> thumbs so, up. Yeah, thumbs up. So the way I see it, in this environment, we're actually dealing with not just the US debt ceiling uncertainty, but global wars and rumors of wars. So I have to give gold a thumbs up. And it doesn't really have to do with inflation. Uh, historically, uh, gold actually rallies due to concern for government or lack of confidence in government. So investors who have cash and are seeking a private sector type safe haven will consider gold as an investment hedge. So that's why I'm still bullish on gold. All right. Next, uh, Adam, what are your thoughts? I know you wrote about gold a lot last year. I give the thumbs, thumbs up. up on gold as well. Um... Yeah, I wrote a lot about gold in 2019 and 2020. Um, gold, if you look at it over a long multi-decade period, was in a, this really long sideways bottoming pattern from about 2013 through about 2018. Nobody wanted to buy gold, but it really wasn't falling in price either. And then in 2019, I recognized when gold made a bullish breakout out of that bottoming pattern. It was looking really good until March of 2020. Uh, basically, everybody sold everything that month and uh, you saw a really sharp um, you know, pullback in gold, but then it rallied higher into mid 2020, uh, mid to late 2020. But since then, it's been kind of tough to be a, a gold bug or even a, a gold bull for other reasons. Um, it's been kind of in this choppy uh, pullback consolidation pattern, but a longer term, I'm bullish on gold uh, for a lot of the same reasons Amber mentioned. I, I mentioned that federal debt as the percent of, G of GDP has uh, increased by twofold over the past decade or so. Um, and so that's really uh, worrisome as far as uh, fiat currency and, and the ability for us to 
uh, repay our debts without uh, debasing the currency. I also tend to think that a lot of the factors that led to a really, really strong U.S. dollar in 2022 have been easing, and I don't expect the dollar to be as strong, so that's bullish for gold. Uh, but then again, just on a micro level, I, I keep track of sector ETFs and industry ETFs, and I look for you know medium-term momentum signals or relative strength signals. And I've just recently gotten one on the uh, the ETF. The ticker symbol is GDX, uh, Gold Miners ETF, the Van Eck Vectors Gold Miners ETF. Um, so I'm seeing a positive trend uh, on absolute terms, and I'm seeing uh, market beating momentum on relative terms. Uh, so I did recommend a bullish trade on GDX and one of my options trading services. So ultimately, uh, I'm a gold bull for now. Yeah, you're not just bullish on it. You're actually, you know, you're trading on it. You're actually, you, you, these aren't just words for you. <laughs> that's that, that's a, an important distinction. Put your money where your mouth is. That's right. Mike, what about you? What are your thoughts? Hey, I'm looking at the data in the futures market and I'm bearish. And I'm with the smart money on this one. So in the futures market, we know who places a trade, whether it's a commercial, small speculator, or hedge fund. Since gold bottomed in September, commercials have been selling. So the individual who's so bullish, they're buying from the miners and the jewelers who hold gold in inventory. There must be a reason those guys are selling. They think prices are high. So for now... The smart money in the futures market, the miners who know the market better than anyone are sellers. And I don't think the rally lasts. Now, there's going to be a lot of spikes. Bad news is going to come from all around the world. It's going to spike gold higher, but the rally doesn't seem sustainable to the gold miners. Interesting. Very good. Mike, you're the professor. This is why we ask, right? I'll, uh, I'll weigh in myself. I'm bullish. I, and it, for me, it comes down to dollar weakness. Right now, I, I think the dollar is likely to have peaked or maybe in the process of peaking anyway. It will likely, for me, come down to what the Federal Reserve does in the coming months. If they keep jacking up rates, then probably you know gold suffers. If they stop, then gold might do well. We shall see. Now, uh, moving on. We love getting comments from our viewers. This is really important to us because it kind of makes it a two-way conversation. Otherwise, it's just us pontificating. So we definitely like you guys to, to give us your questions, give us your comments. So please write in at BanyanEdge at BanyanHill.com. Again, BanyanEdge at BanyanHill.com. That is how you can send your questions and comments to us and have us answer them on air. So Ian wrote an article actually nearly two months ago that still gets comments. Um, it was a very, uh, very timely article. The focus was on deglobalization, but the, really the, the, kind of the, the catchphrase from it was firing China. And so we have a comment about that piece. Uh, Joe writes in to say, hi, Ian. I have been a member of Strategic Fortunes and Profits Unlimited for several years now. I'm a retired Marine Corps officer, so I'm pretty sure you know my responses to your question, is it time for the bully to get bullied? Well, here he goes. We should have done this long before COVID, not only from a financial point of view, but from a strategic point of view, meaning we outsource to an undeclared enemy of the state and put ourselves behind the financial eight ball, not to mention the loans we took from China, not only with chips, but a wide variety of products. This was very short-sighted. This was a very short-sighted approach to profit-making. When dealing with a country whose political theory is the polar opposite of your own, you cannot put yourself in such a vulnerable position. 
If it wasn't COVID, they could have interrupted the supply chain for any other semi-legitimate reasons. Usually, CEOs do not think this way. Thump, the sound of me jumping off my soapbox. So I, I did rather like that. Um, I, I think that's it's interesting. I think the theme of deglobalization is going to be with us for a while, this decoupling of the globalization of the last um, you know, the last several years. Now, Amber, I know that uh, you work with Ian closely. Do you have any comments on that? Well, first of all, hello, Joe. And I have to say that Ian and I agree with you. In this post-pandemic world, we believe that the U.S. will go full throttle in reshoring manufacturing stateside. And what I mean by that, reshoring will be done through technologies like 3D printing and even a concept called production as a service uh, known and what's really stands out from this concept are flex factories. Uh, this relatively new concept is set to transform factory production as we know it, uh, because instead of solely owning physical facilities that manufacture its products, a company actually pays a usage fee uh, to share a highly flexible factory with other companies. And to make the arrangement even more financially attractive, well, third-party investors actually own the assets. So on a global scale, I, I did some research like I normally do just for everything. A survey by Boston Consulting Group asked 1,513 global companies their willingness to use flex factories for their businesses. And the study actually found a growing demand among companies for regional slash local production for reshoring. Increasingly, companies are regionalizing production in order to make goods closer to home, closer to their core market. And the study actually showed that 43% of participants said that they plan to increase the resilience of their global supply chain network uh, through regionalization or deglobalization, one of Ian's uh, key terms. So just a quick example, Walmart, big retailer, has committed to spend an additional $350 billion through 2030 on did items. You say, did you say billion? Yes, I did. That's a big number. Yeah, it's a big number. Through 2030, over time, on items made, grown, or assembled right here in the U.S., which would be great for the U.S. labor market, of course. And lastly, just as an FYI, uh, producers actually recognize the need for more flexible production systems. I have 77% of people from the same study of the participants said that they plan to actually design next production setups uh, for greater flexibility so they can be more uh, responsive to market demands. So I, just, I love this. You know, I, I think it's fascinating. So I'm going to bring it home to Strategic Fortunes, which is Ian's flagship newsletter. So in Strategic Fortunes portfolio, Ian has actually recommended in recent months, within the last, I say, six months, uh, his picks for deglobalization in the U.S. economy. And the stocks that he thinks stands to gain in this manufacturing paradigm shift. So Charles, I do hope that we can include a link to Ian's Strategic Fortune Service in the email that accompanies this we uh, shall. webinar. Awesome. So our Banya Edge people can just learn a little bit more. But in uh, the meantime, I do have some, some ideas. Uh, here are two stocks that may prosper in this reshoring economy. So first is Rockwell Automation. The ticker for this is ROK. So Rockwell Automation is a global leader in digital transformation, as well as industrial automation. 
and the company already uses this flex factory concept type system so that its users can just quickly ramp up production, develop and produce new products using scalable automation, which is pretty cool. And the second company on tap to grow uh, with this Flex Factory US reshoring concept, of course, is dealing with 3D, um, 3D printing and its 3D systems, Corp, ticker DDD. Uh, the company actually manufactures and markets 3D printers and complementary devices. And one of those 3D printers, well, I have to share, it's called the DMP Flex Factory 350 series. So this printer, from what, I, what I understand is as a very small footprint for a reduction of overall uh, required uh, floor space uh, with the means of accelerating production and lowering costs, which is ideal, simply ideal for this flex factory production as a, as a service concept as we uh, march forward, hopefully, in this reassuring new world. So just thought I'd share that. I love this. The U.S. economy is going to come out of this, the leanest, meanest it's ever been in history. This, this is going to be transformative, and it's going to be amazing. It probably means in the meantime, before we get there, it's, there's going to be some inflation. There's going to be some mess in the supply oh. chain. It's going to be messy. But when we're going to come out of this, it's going to be fantastic. Mm -hmm. Like this is, I, I, this is one of the themes that I'm personally the most excited about over the next decade or two. I, th I think it's one of the great trends of our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Now, moving on. Deborah wrote in to ask, what is going to happen when all those electric vehicle batteries expire and there is no place to dump them without ruining the environment? Are there companies that are geared up to dispose of those batteries? Now, Amber, I'm also going to, to, to pose this question to you because I know this is something that you and Ian have discussed, that, that you guys like, have literally covered that exact topic. Yeah, we have. First of all, hello, Deborah, and I'm going to say Deborah. Either way, that's my mom's name. So that's a, I love that name. So it's a really good question. Uh, there are not only companies geared up, Deborah, to dis, uh, dispose of uh, the batteries, but there are companies that are actually geared to recycle them. Yes, the keyword here, recycle. Uh, Tesla co-founder and former chief technology officer, J.B. Uh, uh, Straubel has set out to do just that with his startup Redwood Materials. I don't know if you've heard of this, guys, but the goal of Redwood Materials is EV batteries that last longer. So Mr. Strobel actually believes that EV batteries should last about 15 years, uh, depending on how they're used. But one way that he's looking to improve batteries, battery recycling. So Redwood Materials is actually developing new ways to recycle EV batteries. And these recycled batteries will either power electric cars again, or be used as stationary energy storage systems. So according to Redwood Materials, six gigawatt hours of end of life batteries, enough to actually build more than 60,000 EVs come through its doors each year. And according to Redwood, this quantity actually represents the majority of the lithium ion batteries recycled in North America today. So with that being said, the company is actually boosting its processes in uh, anticipation of a larger battery volumes as the first wave of EVs. Yes, can you believe it? They're already starting, they're starting to retire already, the EVs that kind of been out for a while, which sure. I think is amazing. And automakers, because I love cars, I'm a huge gearhead. You, don't, you wouldn't know how big of a gearhead I am. But anyway, love Volkswagen. Uh, Volkswagen, Audi, Ford, Toyota have actually partnered with Redwood Materials, Charles. And in fact, Redwood uh, actually recovers and recycles end-of-life EV battery packs from thousands of dealership networks in the U.S. And Redwood is actually part of a market 
that is projected to quintuple in size by 2030. And according 2030. Yes. That's and a lot of growth in very little time. Yes, quintuple. So Market Data Center actually forecasts that the global EV battery recycling market will grow from 2.3 billion in 2022 to 12.5 billion by 2030. And that is a compound annual growth rate of 31.6%. Plus, I was just reading how Redwood is investing $3.5 billion in building a 600-acre new recycling manufacturing campus in South Carolina right here in the U.S., that will produce enough components to power a million EVs. And I just think, guys, this is great news, especially for the local economy in South Carolina, as it's projected to bring around 1,500 jobs right to that state will be created uh, through Red Redwood Startup uh, Initiative on Recycling Batteries. So yeah, that it, it solves one of the biggest problems with electric vehicles, which is mm -hmm. what do you do with the battery when it's, when it's done? Like yeah. they, they, they are solving that problem. They're trying. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, please, again, send in questions and comments to BanyanEdge at BanyanHill.com. Again, BanyanEdge at BanyanHill.com. And we look forward to answering them. Until next week, safe investing. <laughs>